Well, good evening, everybody. Um, we're absolutely delighted this evening to have one of our own talking about um, his family. This is a, a series of webinars um, that have been created by Maggie Ferguson, who's our deputy editor of The Tablet. Um, she came up with this idea to do this part work in paper um, and then talking about it and just reading some of the, the, you know, the, the passages and the text it just would come to life by doing a webinar. So we thought we'd do a series of three um, and just talk about family life in the 21st century and how faith um, underpins, um, you know, the, um, the way that we live our lives. Um, so tonight um, we do have um, Brendan and we have Maggie Ferguson on the call. Um, Brendan will talk a little bit about um, why Sue isn't here, because obviously she's not here. You can't see her here on the call. So we'll talk about that. And we're just going to leave the chat box open. So as we're talking, if there's anything that comes to mind, it won't come through to me. It will go straight through to Brendan and to Maggie and um, just jot some things down in the chat or if you want to interject and just um, talk to either Maggie or Brendan just raise your hand or, or just un unmute yourself and um, interject so we're just going to keep this informal and part of the family so without further ado I'm going to hand over to Maggie and Brendan good evening to you thank you thank you Amanda and I think I'm going to hand straight over to Brendan who I think might um say a few words and then read us a piece, a bit of his piece. Well, thanks everybody for rolling up tonight. It's lovely to see people's faces. And uh, I see that Karina Murphy is with us. I've just noticed, which is lovely because uh, Karina is one of the uh, writers to the series and she's got a really remarkable and beautiful piece in this week's issue which you might not have seen yet or it'll be coming uh it's online tomorrow it'll be in the post you should get it by the weekend can we uh, see karina I, ca I can only see her name can we she might not uh she's certainly there but she might not want to put her uh let's her see. she's on she's here so now we advertised tonight's uh webinar with uh maggie and brendan and sue gaysford uh, who is a writer. She used to work for The Tablet. She was our literary editor for mm -hmm. a few years. And uh, it's an interesting illustration of the uh, uh, capriciousness and uncertainty of family life that she can't be with us tonight. We just found out this morning because her husband is seriously ill and there are other family domestic turbulence as well that she has to deal with. So Maggie, uh, Sue, who did a fantastic piece a few weeks ago can't be with us so even more than usual I'm hoping that you'll all be coming in and sharing with us perhaps your own reflections on family life so I should just introduce myself I'm Brendan Walsh and I'm the editor of the tablet and I'm 69 years old and I've got three very small children which I wrote about in the paper uh, a few weeks ago, and you can tell from my crumpled shirt and grubby tie what it means to be a father of three small children. Um, so judging by the uh, letters that I've had over the last two or three weeks, um, there's few things we've done recently that have 
touched readers more than this uh, series. And after I kicked the series off four or five weeks ago, we had a piece by the prize-winning poet Fiona Sampson, very touching, beautifully written piece about being adopted, something that Fiona is still struggling with and has written about for the first time at the age of 60. We had Joanna Moorhead, who you'll know, I'm sure, our arts editor, great writer and reporter, writes about the loss when she was, I think, about eight or nine of her youngest sister, who was not quite four, who was killed in a... Uh, run over by a, a lorry or a car in the street in front of her house. And she writes about the continuing impact of that in her life and the life of her family. Uh, had Mary Kennedy, Kenny, a couple of weeks ago, great Irish writer, writing about her family's struggles with various things, her husband's uh, trouble with drink, her own uh, alcohol addiction for a while, and how she got over that and how, through all these things, somehow light shines through. And then this week, we've got a piece by Karina, who is with us. I won't say too much about it, and perhaps she might read an extract from it later on if she feels able to. And it's a, um, it's a beautiful piece about her illness, about her children, and... On Monday this week, we go to press on a Tuesday. We were looking at the uh, proofs of Karina's piece uh, yesterday, just checking it. And the subs who live upstairs and they come down, up and down the stairs all day with carrying proofs and we correct it, we send them back. And the sub working on Karina's piece, he came down trembling and in tears when he was reading it. It was so uh, moving. It's a beautiful piece. So I hope you'll enjoy that and learn from it this week we've got two more to come and they're really uh, fabulous pieces a beautifully written piece by a wonderful writer and poet yeah, called oh no my son's come back Karina maybe they haven't started wow yet. we've got somebody the host muted. Muted you, so they might not start okay no don't worry there's somebody who no Karina we can hear you people. We can it's Karina, it's somebody else, I think, hasn't got there. Oh. is muted. Well, Karina seems to be muted. Yeah, but there's somebody who isn't muted, who I just... Everyone's oh, muted now, apart from Maggie and Brendan. Ah, very Karina good. Karina shouldn't be muted. Yeah, there was somebody... Uh, yeah. Well done, that's kind. There was somebody who put their microphone on. Uh, and then finally, we've got a piece to cheer us all up by uh, the great Frank... Um, Cottrell Boyce and his wife uh, Denise about the joys, joy-filled piece about uh, having lots of children enjoying family life. So what I'm going to do is, um, if this makes sense, I'm going to read two or three extracts from my story just in case uh, a lot of you won't have read it or just don't know what it is. Uh, and then we'll uh, break, have a bit of a reflection for perhaps what I've learnt from it, and Maggie might grill me a bit on what I've said. So just to uh, remind you of the story, uh, my own story, um, and this is reading from the piece. 
Um, I'd met this girl, Laura. I hadn't met her very long, a few weeks, really. And uh, she said to me one, one afternoon, uh, we need to have a serious conversation. And of course, uh, I knew, you know, we all might do when our friends or when women say this kind of thing to us, what is going to come next. And Laura, who I'd met, she was um, a brilliant writer and she'd just become a Catholic. And that was how I met her. And she'd been writing in the media about her rediscovery of her childhood Catholicism, which had fallen away uh, really around the time when she was 10 or 12, young teenager. And her friends and her family, several generations of very respectable, liberal-minded Cambridge academics, thought she'd lost her marbles. And at the time, I was doing the books pages at the tablet, and uh, Laura did a couple of reviews for us, and then we met, and uh, we got uh, quite close, but this was quite a quick thing really and I was 59 and divorced a lifelong Catholic and Laura was 35 uh, just starting to become successful as a writer and um, lovely though it was uh, when she said we need to have a bit of a chat darling I kind of expected what was coming next and steel myself to be as graceful as possible when I heard the news of my demise. And uh, she told me, then, sweetheart, we're uh, pregnant, uh, and we're going to have a baby. So it was a complete and total astonishment. And I remember feeling... Uh, quite frightened and a bit, I have to admit, slightly ridiculous, rather selfish. And the first, we'd already planned to do this, but I remember the next day I was having lunch with an old friend who was a Catholic, quite stiff, uh, proper, and I was a bit embarrassed and I thought he'd be, when I told him at the, the news, I thought he'd be... Um, polite but kind of disapproving and stiff and say pray for me and that he hoped we'd manage this difficult situation and when I told him that this uh my Laura 35 year old Laura was pregnant and this 59 year old man divorced chap and she was full of excitement she's full of her new faith so it wasn't an easy situation and this chap, his face lit up in a joy that I'll never forget. And it happened to me so often after this. And he said, um, children, he said, the most wonderful thing in the world. And I'm so happy for you both. And uh, when we trooped off to Cambridge to meet uh, Laura's mother and her father, uh, and then I met my mother, I was always a bit... Um, nervous about telling people this news as i said i still felt a bit ridiculous 
slightly uh, a bit selfish about it. And the reaction of everybody was uh, all, again, this big grin and, you know, people are realistic. It's not straightforward, but the joy of having children and um, of children coming into the world. And suddenly I realized that um, there was somebody else who was at the center of things. And again, that's one of the great lessons I picked up over the years to come after 60 years of me being at the center of the world. Suddenly I was not the chief object of interest, but there was somebody else far more interesting and important than me who had arrived. And a year after uh, Margaret came, barely a year, Mary arrived. And then a year afterwards, Anne arrived. And as I write in the piece, I knew I'd gone from the mildly ridiculous to the criminally irresponsible. And around the time of Mary's arrival, uh, my boss, Catherine Pepinster, decided to leave the tablet and I was asked to look after the paper. Uh, so at 62, I uh, become an accidental editor as well as an accidental father. And up to that point, my life had been very compact and well-organized. I remember I used to pick up my shirts in cellophane, cellophane wrapped, neatly folded every week. And all my books were in alphabetical order. And quite a small studio flat, but it was meticulously organized. And in the, this was followed by total mayhem I don't know if you know what it's like having three small children, but uh, I was catapulted into this chaos, extraordinary beauty, terror, alarm, and joy. And as I write in the piece, the loaves were multiplied and the water turned into wine, but we were both too exhausted to enjoy the miracle. I remember going off to work every morning, <laughs> leaving this house with my, you know, children's breakfast down the front of my shirt and finding press day. Press day at the tablet is actually quite chaotic and the phone's ringing and everybody's up and down the stairs full of excitement and panic and alarm and looking at their watches and we're going to press in three hours, two hours, one hour. Have we done the cover? Have we got the leaders ready? It's uh, it's pretty chaotic at work, but it just felt completely serene and well-organized compared to the chaos that I was leaving at home. And I remember at weekends, um, I would be more use at home and uh, just finding at the end of the middle of the afternoon of this, I can remember... Uh, Laura, almost too tired to speak, but looking at each other and signalling that it was the other other's turn to have an hour nap on the sofa while one of us could manage and putting the children to bed and just collapsing, completely exhausted. So I've always known who's had the bulkiest portfolio. And one thing I want to say in this extract is you know, that being a father, uh, it's not some 
secret knowledge. I didn't learn anything that if I'd been more attentive, you couldn't learn. If you were, didn't have children or weren't married, it is a completely different planet, but it's not some kind of lofty higher experience, but gosh, it was, it was different. And I think I'm old enough. That's one virtue of being old. You don't, um, you know, you don't get smug and think you're anything special because you're a father, because I've been long enough living on my own not to imagine that. So it was a, I was parachuted into another, another world, but I didn't feel I was, you know, anything particularly special. It was just very, very ordinary, very, very different. <laughs> So that was where I've got a few more extracts, but let's just pause and wonder if Maggie's any questions or anybody any questions to ask about that. I'm just looking in the chat. Well, um, I'm interested to know, Brendan, whether so when, when Laura said to you, we've got to have a chat um, <laughs> and you thought you were about to get the heave ho, um, which which would have been a bigger shock to you? To be kicked out or for Laura to say there's a baby on the way? The um, idea of, of uh, I suppose, I did study medicine for about 18 months when I left school. So I ought to have a rudimentary knowledge of how babies are made. But it simply never entered my head that uh, Laura might be pregnant it just wasn't something it was it was uh, it never crossed my mind mm. so it was a complete so I assumed and I think as I wrote that neither of us were you know both kind of realistic it was lovely but uh, Laura was 35 uh, and you know the natural thing which I find a nice Catholic lawyer mm rather than some divorced man of 59. So I've always thought, I mean, we've been incredibly lucky and we, it was just such a blessing for me, but um, that uh, it was a, almost a catastrophe for Laura to get stuck with this chap, you know, when she could have done so much better, but she's been, you know, decent enough stick, but he's not quite what I had in mind, you know. Uh, anyway, we well, made it. Pretty happy to be. Um, <laughs> And um, <clears throat> can you say a little bit about your, so you've said how Laura had come back to the church and was a very yeah. sort of fervent Catholic, but you say about your own faith, um, the church is where my feet are absent-mindedly, but firmly planted. What does that mean? It's interesting. We were very different in our Catholic background, if you like. I come from an Irish Catholic uh culture background parents my parents were both Irish brought up in Ireland and came to England like an awful lot of people of their generation in the 1950s to work and uh, the Catholic parish was a big part of their life when they were in there they were both very young in their 20s when the children they had three children were born and it was just a part of our my identity growing up something I didn't think that much or deeply about it was just who I was and that's what I mean a bit by 
absent-minded. I never quite thought about it. It was just part so of what it. About, what about now, Brendan? How would you describe it now? Well, I think like a lot of Catholics of my sort after 60 years, I still kind of feel... Um, and I, you know, and I worked for Catholic Publishing. I worked at Cathod before I came to Tablet. So I'm, a, in one sense, quite a serious Catholic. But I've and studied it at university. Um, but it's always been something um, that kind of a default or taken for granted a bit or just there. And the difference with Laura and people like Laura is where they are not finding themselves in. Catholicism in the Catholic faith it's something they're outside of mm. they look at it they read about it they meet Catholics they think about it it's it's a positive decision to pick it up and I want to belong to that those those people I want to do what they're doing and I believe what they believe they come into it and it's we've all experienced this I think this kind of difference of the, of the convert kind of experience yeah. and the default Catholic experience. So, um, again, it was so lucky to have somebody uh, when we bring up the children and just somebody for whom, uh, I mean, she's so about more prayers, grace before meals, medals around their necks when we're going on a journey, um, things are kind of just part of, for me, part of the way things are done around here or mm. the things she reads about she studies she thinks about talks about um so it's the same thing we go to church together but our way of being a catholic way of coming to be a catholic is very different mm. it's again mm. being part of the learning thing for me um there's a, there's a really interesting question that's come in from sarah walsh uh for some reason masquerading as Philip Harper, but it is Sarah <laughs> Walsh. Um, and she says, I just wondered if becoming a father yourself made you reflect on your own experience of being fathered. Did it change your perspective on your own childhood? And you talk about, you do talk about that in the office sometimes, about how how adored you were by your parents. I think we others will, will <clears throat> their own... Uh memories of this or take on this but it's almost not something you do consciously but when you're with your children if you are a father or a mother um and you're reacting to how they're behaving or you find yourself doing enjoying certain things finding certain ways of responding the natural thing to do you suddenly it suddenly dawns on you that these are habits or patterns that you've picked up from your own childhood that you've almost forgotten. I mean, one of the great things for me about uh, this this late life experience, and my mother's still alive, is I suddenly realised something I've never realised before till I've had a go at it myself, is what they did for me and how my own childhood was, which again, like so many things in life, you just don't really reflect on, you take for granted. And it's with a, a real shock and an awakening and an appreciation that I suddenly realize, um, gosh, you know, 
what they did, what parents do for their children, which again, I hadn't, I kind of took it for granted, you know. Uh, and I was lucky, I think I've written about this, that I remember when I was at school, we used to, uh, once a week, I think I was at boarding school, you could ring up, you could call mum and dad. There was a queue outside this one phone in the whole school in Carlisle. And when my turn, I came up to the phone, bo phone, phone box, you had to put money in the slot. And I would call home to Wakefield and my mother would pick up the phone. And I can still remember her voice when she'd say, Dick, it's Brendan. And I can remember it was quite lovely for me that feeling that she was just delighted to hear my voice. And then I always kind of had this picture of my father kind of smiling and looking up and putting down whatever he was doing and coming over to the phone to have a chat with this son who was away at boarding school. And it was, it never felt, uh, and I was not, I'm sure I was incredibly annoying as a child. I was getting into trouble, sort of getting suspended and all kinds of scrapes. And uh, they got cross with me and, you know, I was always in trouble. I don't think I was ever whacked by my dad, but uh, certainly got whacked by teachers at school. Uh, that although they didn't approve of what I did and I was scolded quite a lot, I always felt... Um, that they liked me, you know, liked having me around. And I was on the phone. Uh, oh, what's he up to? Let's go and have a chat with him. And that was such a um, a gift for me. And I think it's, as I've said, I think that um, the most important, if, if we're lucky enough to just have it, is to delight in our children, to take pleasure. Yeah, it's lovely. Mm. Uh, and... Um, I was lucky that way. And again, I think it's, it's just how it is. Again, it's just something I've inherited or something we've all got. This is effortless. Is um, when I wake up in the morning and have breakfast with the girls, it's, and, and they kind of come in and there's, sometimes there's three of them on my lap or around my neck or something or reading or they want to come in and ask me to do things. Um, I've never had such joy as as just having these children, and it does does remind me of what it was like when I was small. Just the sheer, uh, just the sense that uh, I guess any kind of now I, I with my own children, it's reminded me or awakened in me a memory of of the, these being a child and yeah. being when I come into a room and, and a parent sees me, they start smiling. You know, they they oh, it's Brendan's here. You know, it's just beautiful and, and I, i've always i've never it's kind of there's almost you discover the secrets to your um sense of uh things are okay you know you wake up in the night when you're small and it's dark and there's a shadow on the back of the door that's a coat but you think it's it's a, a dragon and you start crying out you're frightened and then the next thing that happens is the door opens and somebody comes in and they're warm 
and uh, they whisper in your ear, everything is going to be all right. And these things, if you're lucky enough to have that experience of whenever things are a bit rocky, the next thing that happens is that somebody comes and holds you and tells you everything is fine and you're lovely. And I guess the um, people say this, don't they? The downside or the... Um, not the downside, but the impact of this is if you are brought up to think you're great or lovely or everything's going to be all right, um, these are often people who turn out not to be the great kind of achievers in life. Um, and sometimes when people tell their autobiography of their people, and a bit of a, you know, mum and dad were never quite satisfied with what they did. So they strive to impress them by coming first in the class and whatever they do, they never quite feel it's sufficiently uh, top marks to please dad who's always a bit doubtful. And that's what drives them on to uh, become head of, uh, head of ICI or the editor of the times or whatever, because mm. they're somehow driven to uh, please their, parents are always slightly um always thought they were kind of 90 percent whereas if you've had parents who think whatever you do is fine and everything's safe you you maybe settle for uh the okay i don't know so well, maybe being cursed by well, a loving loving parents i didn't <laughs> just... well i don't know i'm not sure i think that's very debatable <laughs> but, um i'm wondering whether because it's already half past six can we try to bring in karina that'd be great uh karina are you there can you speak to us no no okay all right um hi 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 sorry i had to press the button um yeah i am here i have covid so i'm a little bit hoarse um and i don't know why you can't see me but and i can't see you but um, have you got I'm, have you got a camera at the bottom of your I screen do, i do i fiddled with it my husband's fiddled with it we're not quite sure why it's not coming okay. on um anyway right. I'm okay. <laughs> well it's very good of you to be here when you're when you're no here. problem it's, that was really interesting good to hear brendan um Karina, tell us a bit about your uh, piece, and and I am imagining it was pretty difficult to write. Um, it was surprisingly easy to write. I thought it would be difficult to write. Um, obviously, uh, this is sort of going back over five years now. Um, you may and... need to tell everyone because not everyone will. Sorry, have read it. sorry, sorry, Maggie. Yeah. <clears throat> My piece was about um, having cancer, um, which was diagnosed just over five years ago now, um, and really the effect that had on the family. I have two children um, who were ooh, nine and four at the time of my diagnosis. Um, so together with them and my husband, I got the diagnosis and then we moved fairly swiftly from London um, back to the Northeast, which is where I'm from originally. Uh, so that's that's what the piece was about. And I, <clears throat> I found that um, although I've made friends in the cancer community and done sort of social media things, connecting with people and write and, and sort of talking about my story there. I hadn't actually written about cancer properly until now. And I sort of hadn't wanted to. And everyone kept saying, are you going to write about it? And, you know, that's what you do. And, and you know, where, where's all the writing about cancer? And I didn't want to do it until um, I volunteered to do it for this. And then actually, to be honest, I sat down and I wrote it in an hour and a half. Um, I did edit it I promise but um I, but wrote it really fairly quickly yes 
and you managed to um, keep a good deal of kind of humour threaded through the piece. And, may, and I'm kind of imagining that you managed to do that through your life with all its difficulties. Yeah, um, I think we, we've had to. And um, I've, I've had quite a few um, people say to me that they've actually found the way that I and, and we talk about it a bit too dark. Um, but it's it's just always been our way of coping. Um, my children are fairly um, humorous um, about it. And my husband probably is is the one who, who hasn't really joined in on this. But actually, to be fair, he, he he's sort of had to go with it. And yeah, it, it's definitely been a way that we've coped with it. Is to um is is to sort of um, to make light of certain. I mean, not all the time, obviously, yeah. but yeah. yeah. So it was interesting <laughs> that you felt um that there are lots of ways in which people would imagine you know your life would go if you heard you've got cancer and you've got everything, mm. and actually, uh, what's happened for you is is nothing like what people would imagine. Is that no? Right? I mean. Yeah, it is right. I mean, I'm considered a bit of an outlier. I am <laughs> unusual in that um, with stage four cancer, I have been off treatment for over three years now and have what they call, which is basically remission, but with stage four, they call it um, no evidence of disease. So I've basically, I've been lucky enough that I, my life is not back to normal. Um, it's definitely probably the life of an older person. I have to pace myself a little bit. Yeah. Um but I've essentially been able to continue, um, you know, I, I work a bit, I, I, I do, um, you know, I, I keep busy doing things with the children and, and life is fairly normal. And actually, my youngest said to me the other day that um, they'd been doing science um, and somehow they'd got round to talking about cancer. I think it's because they were talking about all the different medicines that people might take and, and labelling where they went and, and what part of the body they helped. And of course, everyone else was saying sort of parasitic and you know um sort of something you might put on a gray's knee and my son said chemotherapy and they ended up talking about that at school and um, one of his friends had actually said to him um he, he said my mom has stage four cancer um and one of his friends had said to him no she doesn't i've seen her walking around um so my children are sort of out there um sort of um dispelling the myths about what what cancer actually means these days when there's obviously can so you, many can you say i mean they they obviously are both um, really remarkable boys, and but can you say a little bit uh, particularly about your older son? Oh yeah, and and um, okay. yeah, yeah. So I mean, my my eldest is um, uh, has an extra chromosome. Um, uh, he has something called trisomy eight mosaic and um, so he has learning difficulties across the board um, speech particularly um, so yeah various bits and pieces going on with him but emotionally he's really robust and actually he's always um, he's always been at the age you'd expect him to be at um, in terms of emotional development um, so now I have a teenager in the house you know he's 14 coming up 15 and and he yeah he's very grumpy and he's he, the one he whose company you kind of seek out when I, I do I do, I do. so yeah. I, he's very um he's very relaxed um and he although he has lots of challenges I guess he's um he, he doesn't worry too much. Um, so he's the person who I would definitely choose to spend time with. Um, mm -hmm. if I'm sort of waiting for some news or waiting for more treatment or, or just worried generally. He's just very easygoing um, and he's always happy to just sort of spend time, you know, mm -hmm. having that, having a walk. And he's, yeah, he's very relaxing. 
So we've got a question, another question that's come in, and it's really, I think it was aimed at Brendan because it was while he was talking still, but I think you could both answer it, actually. So it's from Stella, um, and she's wondering in what ways, well, she's wondering for Brendan, in what ways your experiences of fatherhood and family life have shaped your approach to discernment? Uh, what am I meant to be doing with my life compared to your earlier years? But I think, Karina, you could answer a bit for you know, your experiences of illness, what, what, in what way have they shaped your approach uh, to the way you're living your life? Brendan, do you want to jump in? Mm. (laughs) Stella, that's quite a question. (laughs) I, um, discernment in, in the sense of how to reflect on what we what the right decision is how we should make up our mind about what the right next thing to do is that changed a lot for me as I got older I think like a lot of us or maybe the particular generation I was in that I was um my 30s 40s and up certainly up to 50 i was um i was quite oriented towards achieving goals i wasn't obsessed by it but i used to have make plans if i took on a job or made a big decision i would think them through in terms of um where this will lead where it will get me to I was quite oriented by um, achieving certain goals, I suppose, in terms of my um, career and personal life, for that matter. I would I would plan, not obsessively, but I was quite a bit of a planner. And I remember it was roughly when I got into my fifties. I um, I pretty much almost quite suddenly really I I kind of put behind me uh, strategic thinking and uh, said you know what matters isn't what we want to achieve or what we want to get to I think a lot of people do this when they get older they say what really matters is um, who we are you know what kind of person we are and rather than looking at the what I want to get to at the end of this year, my five-year plan, it was um, how we can be a bit more attentive to people around us and attentive to the world and um, just be a bit less of a nuisance and more thankful, all those simple things. So not what we want to get to, but who we want to be. And uh, and then you kind of, uh, whatever comes up, you bring the best of yourself to trying to address it. And so I remember when I was, um, you know, clearing out old diaries and things, I remember having these lists of things I hope to do. That is about 20 years since I ever troubled to think about uh, what I want to get to, what I'm going to do. Things have just come along. And uh, you do your best to cope with them. 
discernment, another big part of this, I think, as I understand it, certainly the Ignatian tradition is about uh, listening, making use of the wisdom of others, which is not something I've ever been notoriously good at. And in all the hurly-burly of this family thing I've been flung into, having most of my life, you know, lived really most of my pretty much on my own. Um, and uh, I always knew when I woke up in the morning that all the socks and things on the floor, they all belong to me. Uh, whereas now, living in a, a rather smaller flat or house than I used to have when I was on my own and it is constantly thronged with people and the, I've got no idea who's owns all the socks that are on the floor all the time but one thing that this um, has this sudden living with crowds has brought along is whether I like it or not I've got to listen to people and uh, before I make decisions before I discern things is to pay attention to the community that I now find myself in after 50 years of not having a community mm -hmm. and uh, that I think is is the big change that family life has brought to me mm. from being on my own and uh, planning things to uh paying attention, listening to people, and uh, not really having any plans at all, mm. doing what I'm told from day to day. Karina, <laughs> what, what would, what, do you have an answer to that question? Well, um, you might need to guide me a little bit. I was too busy listening to Brendan's answer to actually think about it. <laughs> Whether your um, experiences over the last five years have, have shaped your approach to discernment and what you're what really matters in life I think that's basically mm, I, I mean <laughs> I think I have to say yes don't I um really I think that um hmm <laughs> it's really difficult um I think for me um it's th there's been a change I suppose within those five years because for me to some degree um it for the first well probably for the first four years it was still about to some degree achievement not my achievements but the children's milestones the children's achievements and sort of getting them there and seeing them do it um, whereas now I suppose I've relaxed a little bit um, and I suppose I'm trying to um, live more in the moment and 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 sort of explore what may be where they are at the moment not where they're going to be in six months hopefully with me there as well does that make sense Definitely does. yeah yeah because um, yeah, you could might want to say a bit about how um what the part religion has played in your life over the past five years which again i think is it, you say is not quite what people might expect yeah it, it's not and i i suppose possibly well possibly i should say um I um, I'm not a cradle Catholic. My husband is. Um, I actually became Catholic um, because of my experiences with my eldest, um, enjoying and loving church, and my husband then persuading me that actually I should get out of bed and go along with them because my um, my son enjoyed it so much. So I guess sort of 
12 years or so ago, I started going and then ended up being baptized, confirmed, becoming Catholic myself when I was pregnant with my youngest, so 10 years ago. Um, and so, I I mean, when, when that happened 10 years ago, I was very... Um, sort of diligent about going to church a lot about helping out about really immersing myself in Catholicism and I would have thought that that would have sort of become stronger when I got ill for me it it, it didn't so much possibly because we left our church community behind when we moved when I got ill and we sort of started again at a new church mm -hmm. uh, it might be partly to do with that but I didn't lose faith but it didn't it didn't become more important. It just sort of continued quietly in the background. Um, I, we, we did keep going to mass and it's, it's one of the things that we, we did continue to do as a family, I suppose. It, it, it was important in that respect in that it was a sort of constant comfort, but it didn't suddenly take on any significant new meaning, which I put perhaps it should have done or, or for some people it no, does. I <laughs> about it, but I think you're both very lucky uh, in that you are, you both have Catholic uh, spouses. Yes. And I think bringing up children and trying to bring up Catholic children is a completely different experience if you, mm. if you don't have a Catholic husband or yes. wife. Yes. Yeah. So I think my husband was quite pleased when I, when I joined. Yeah. 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 I'm wondering if there are more questions that people want to ask by putting their hands up rather than putting them on the chat box. Are there any more questions? I can't see everybody's. Can't see everybody's hands. There is one uh, faith-related thing that I'm thinking about now. It was a great question from Stella, um, that fatherhood has brought to me. Anyway, is I now notice all the language in the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament. The word father is on every page, you know. Mm. And I've always, we've all got fathers. We all know what we see fathers in. We read about them. We, we're all familiar with fathers. Um, but again, in my usual lazy, inattentive kind of way, it's never quite sunk in what a father is until the last few years. Uh, and... Now, all that language of fatherhood, and I know that biblical language is not descriptive because we're human beings and God is something wholly other, but we kind of use that language of fatherhood to, to name God. Um, it's, it's what kind of language that we reach to for, reach for to help us put the nearest human words we can think of to pinning it on what God is, which is impossible to do, but that's when we try to do it, we reach for that kind of language. And um, now I, I kind of read all that, all those descriptions of God, the father and how, how we reach for that language when we're, trying to pray or describe the things of God. And uh, I, I kind of think, you know, cripes, you know, that, that's, that's, that's sort of, not, it's not me they're talking about, but, you know, it's given me such a, a sense of what 
fatherhood is, you know, and how in our culture, how how it, it's what we kind of language that we we're trying to express some of the most important things. It's the kind of words that we we use. And of course, beside that goes the sense of how fragile and how vulnerable all of us are to bad examples of fatherhood when fatherhood goes wrong as we all know in families sometimes happens that um, families can be places of fantastic joy <coughs> safety and satisfaction and beauty and places of fear and damage and abuse and how you know when we're trying to struggle to understand just why abuse is such a unspeakably cruel and lifelong thing that damages damages people for life in a lifelong kind of way so often that um fathers you know having a good father a not so good father these none of us are defined by what happens in our childhood we we're not doesn't identify us or make us you know we can we can make ourselves we're not conditioned determined by our upbringing we mustn't think that we are but they're so fundamentally powerful and important for good and for not so good and that is again one of the things that has made me um feel that to be kind of walking on tiptoe or aware of something so important you know that i'd never quite realized before and about my how lucky i was my, with my own father and mm. I look now around all the fathers in the world. I see men taking their children to school, I, mothers as well, of course. But just for me, I just see all the time. I look around at children with their dad and I think, mm. gosh, you know, take care because there's something very important happening here. And mm. the people I know, I mean, we've had a call from Anne Walsh earlier on, and I know Anne Walsh and uh her husband and what a extraordinary father he was and uh, you know all those things that you've kind of watched before and now from the inside they resonate with so much more um feeling and uh depth and immediacy and i'm just a, i can smell them now in a way i could just read them now it's a real gosh so everything is the world just has a different coat of paint for me mm. in the last few years. Well, I mean, I'm I'm glad that we, although it was a very sad piece, I'm glad we ran the piece by Fiona Sampson, um, <clears throat> which reflected a, a, an experience, a really totally different experience to what you're what you're talking about, and um, maybe it's quite important to remember, uh, you know remember how very very different it is for some people Karina we haven't heard we don't know anything about your childhood and <laughs> okay um I don't I don't really know uh do you want to know in terms of faith or just in terms of oh, really in, in terms of wh whether you were sort of happily parented uh, yeah I I um 
yes, I'm the youngest of three. Um, so sort of half of half of my childhood was with my brother and sister around and half of it wasn't. Um, but yeah, a sort of fairly standard childhood, I suppose. Um, and then your own mother, when you got ill, your own mother, age 77. Mm -hmm. She's still She's still again. Yeah. Yeah. She's just texted me now saying she's bringing me some soup tomorrow. So she's still doing oh, yeah. it five minutes later. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So my my dad died when I was 21, but my mum's my still around. Um, and yeah, she's, mm. she's been fantastic. She's very robust. Um, she's just had a stroke this year but she's sort of back at it playing bridge and you know going to opera classes and all the things that she likes to do so she's mm. she's a um she's a good role model and she was yeah she was a a, a, a great mum and, and my dad too so sort of fairly fairly standard and lucky. easy really yeah, <laughs> yeah. both of very lucky <laughs> yeah yeah you know maggie i think i've said this to you in the office but um one of the interesting things since I wrote that piece, and we've had great response to all the pieces, different kinds of responses. Yeah. But uh, I got dozens and dozens of emails about yeah. saying, and uh, nine out of ten of the responses I got were from men. Yes. From not necessarily fathers, but they were they were all from men, all all obviously thinking, you know, what, what a terrific chap I was. Uh, and I got very, relatively few. I got a few nice, encouraging little emails from women saying, you know, I enjoyed your piece. And I kind of, again, these things that dawn on you when you're being a bit thick, a bit dim, a bit slow in the uptake is, you know, you imagine women reading these pieces about fathers helping with the washing up or whatever it is, thinking they're great. And, you know, women readers are thinking, you know, kind of, uh, you know, so what? You know, all this fuss he's making, you know, this is just what we do. And here's another pretty hopeless bloke playing the lovably useless card, you know. And if he's so smart, why doesn't he learn to drive or whatever it is? <laughs> you know, he's not very good at. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. They've I all think, been very nice, but de it's definitely the men who are the ones who marvelous, very good. <laughs> so I wonder, if there's a, who... um, uh, I wonder if you would mind if I asked a rather kind of left field question because we're coming up to time. Um, so you both talked about, you know, the joy of your children, the joy of parenthood, which you wouldn't be without. Um, do either of you have? views at all about um a church in which the priests can't be married and can't have children uh, <laughs> yes definitely yeah you think um, I, yeah i mean i i have uh friends who actually a priest friend who's hopefully still coming on sunday and and it's um it's a big sadness isn't it to a lot of priests that that's not something that they can do and as I understand it and like I say I'm, I'm I don't have the best or the most long-standing Catholic knowledge but I believe it's a man-made law that priests can't marry and I, I, I just think it's really really sad to be um, denied that chance. Brendan? Well I don't have actually um, I can only speak from my own experience <clears throat> and one of the things 
one of the many things I found out when I was in uh, um, in bandit territory for a couple of years until I got my first marriage papers all sorted out and I could uh, marry in church um, was um, a lot of conversations with Catholic priests. And um, my experience is that celibate Catholic priests um, are neither more nor less kind of likely to be um, wise or understanding or sympathetic or cold or warm or whatever than other men. And there is this extraordinary thing that I've learned from uh, Catholic priests is that because of the confessional and perhaps because of the culture in which they are constantly listening to people with various difficulties and marriage um, stories to tell, they completely unshockable um they know more than the average psychiatrist or whatever certainly more than most i think about uh what it means to be married and a parent so again i'm always a bit slow to kind of think about people who are indifferent you know not married or not having children that somehow they know less or feel less that's not my experience and certainly um you know when i became a father um some of the the people who told me how wonderful it would be were people who were not didn't have children or were celibates or priests or whatever so uh, i can understand very well the case for there not being mandatory uh celibacy but i um i've always thought the church is lucky to have priests who simply want to give their whole lives to serving a community body soul to be free as a choice i mean i think the argument is whether that should be there should be a space for married priests as a good case for that i think mm. but uh in my experience uh celibate catholic priests have been a gift in my life so mm. great so I think we're kind of knocking on <clears throat> seven o'clock. Um, I don't know, Amanda, should I be wrapping up at this point? We'll Stephanie? wrap up, um, uh, Maggie and uh, Brendan and Karina. And thank you so much for, again, it's it's just an intimate look into people's lives and and just, you know, the, the fact that we're on this call as a tablet um, community, just listening in and absorbing what you're saying. It's 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 just a... It's really good of you to do this because we're all learning as we go yeah. along. Um, we do have more of these um, family uh, events coming up. Um, so as we look at what's on the agenda for the next um, couple of months, actually, with the tablet, um, the next event we have uh, with the family is, if I can just get my slides again. It will come. There it is. Um, we've got John Burnside, who's a Scottish poet and novelist who's won almost every prize going in conversation with Fiona Sampson, <laughs> who's a prize winning poet. Um, John's written about grandfathers and Fiona's written for the first time about being adopted. Um, so that one's on the 15th of November. And then following that, we have Joanna Moorhead, who's the Tablets Art edi Editor in conversation with Levi Roach. Oh, um, no. <clears throat> No, it's not Levi Roach. Even uh, better. It's Maggie. 
It's Maggie. No, it's not me. No, but I'm saying, Maggie, are you going to say who it is? Um, It's Mary Kenny. Kenny, isn't it? It's Mary. Mary. It's Mary. Yes, it is. Yeah. You're right. Um, it's Mary. So have a look out in the tablet and make sure you get the um, up to date listings of who's on the tablet webinar series Family Matters. Um, tomorrow evening, um, we have the final in our series of the um, Synodal uh, webinars, uh, which we've done in partnership with Notre Dame University Australia. Um, so we have um, Ruth Gledhill, who will be talking to Professor Rene and Professor Eamon um, from the University of Notre Dame in Australia. And this one will be about exactly what happened at the Synod, because both of them were there. So um, we're looking forward to that one. If you haven't booked your ticket, then please do go on the tablet website. And we've just finalised our tablet advent reflection webinar series. This will be the um, third time we've done this now. So we have a series of four webinars um, which take us right through Advent um, with Sister Laurentia, we've got Father Nicholas King, we've got Margaret Hebblethwaite and we've got Sister Gemma Simmons. So please do have a look out for those um, reflection webinar series. Every year they've been absolutely wonderful and a really lovely way to take us into that Christmas period. Um, so again, you can book your tickets for those on the tablet website. We have our tablet carol service coming up. It's at Farm Street Church in Mayfair. I don't know if you know, last year um, we had a train strike and we still managed to get about 100 people there. Um, so there's mulled wine, there'll be mince pies, there'll be much cheer. Um, so please do come along to the tablet carol service. It's absolutely free of charge um, and uh, it's just a beautiful service. And we do have the um, All Saints Catholic um, Choir there. Um, and we'll also have festive readings from some very well-known personalities and friends of the tablet. Um, as we move on, uh, we've still got a few tickets left for Advent in Rome. So if you're looking for a trip abroad, then 8th to the 13th of December, Advent in Rome. Um, and uh, your host for that is actually Sister Gemma Simmons. Um, so she'll be the spiritual advisor on that trip. And then look out for the other trips we've got coming up. So we've got Indian churches and temples. And we have our pilgrimage of um, uh, remembrance uh, to Poland. Um, if you're not a subscriber to the Pastoral Review of the Tablet, then you can do so by going on to www.thetablet.co.uk. And if you don't want to subscribe, but you'd like to fund um, someone on our waiting list, we have a school's waiting list and a prisoner's waiting list, and they're all looking for subscriptions to the tablet. Yeah. Um, so all the details of how to give a donor copy uh, to a school or to a prisoner can be found in the tablet. We've now finished our in-paper tablet development fund appeal. So Brendan's got lots of space to write now, so he's quite chuffed about that. Um, but if you haven't had chance or, or the funds um, to send to the tablet development fund, then you can still do so by just going on our website. Do remember the tablet is a registered charity. Um, so any any funds, any donations are always gratefully received. Many thanks for all your support and thank you for supporting our webinars. This has been um, a truly unique webinar this evening um, and it's been absolutely wonderful um, just to get a bit more insight into the people I work with. Mm -hmm.